from Luke chapter 11, the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Listen for the word of the Lord. He was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. So Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us, and do not bring us into the time of trial. And he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has arrived, and I have nothing to set before him. And he answered from within, do not bother me, the door has already been locked and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and get you anything. But I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything out of friendship, at least because of his persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Search and you will find, knock, and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who searches finds, and for everyone who knocks, the door will be open. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for a fish, would give the child a snake instead of a fish? Or if the child asks for an egg, you would give the child a scorpion instead? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Spirit to those who ask Him? This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Today's text reads a lot like a triptych. If you are an art connoisseur, a triptych is a three-panel piece. They can stand independently, but they work really well together. And that makes sense because Luke is the patron saint of artists as depicted here in our resurrection window there. He's just to Jesus's immediate left and there's a shield and it has a palette with some paint colors and a brush. uh, Peter, Lord, was the patron saint of the arts. Luke was. And this triptych, it offers three different images. Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer this parable about a friend at midnight, and then these weird set of questions followed by what the Holy Spirit will do. Philip Yancey, the author, tells the story about a doctoral student at Princeton who once asked Albert Einstein, what is there left in the world for an original dissertation and its research, an original dissertation, to which Albert Einstein replied, Please find out about prayer. Somebody must find out about prayer. Today's text, it emphasizes prayer. It has comedic moments in it, in my opinion. One example is when Jesus was praying in a certain place and he finished and his disciples asked him, one disciple asked him, teach us how to do that. Meaning either they were spying on Jesus or they had their eyes open watching what he was doing from afar. The disciples were curious because someone must find out about prayer You know, the more I thought about it, Jesus never taught the disciples how to preach. He didn't really teach them how to teach. He taught them a lot about how to pray.
pray and the purpose of prayer, the posture of prayer. The disciples were watching Jesus. They were tuned in to Jesus. They were noting Jesus' every move. They were calibrating the rhythms of their lives to Jesus. And one of them was so bold, an unnamed disciple. By the way, that's Luke's way of putting us in the story. Someone was so bold as to come and say, teach us. We don't know how to do that. Teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray. How do you pray? When do you pray? Where do you pray? Maybe more importantly, why? Why do you pray? Frederick Buechner says that everyone is praying whether he or she realizes it or not. For example, the odd silence into which we fall when something beautiful happens, like a sunset or I don't know, like a ballet on the riverfront, or that ah kind of moment that sends chills up one's neckline when we look upwardly during the 4th of July and see the reenactment of the bombs bursting in air. It tells us, reminds us of our story. We pray without knowing it when we hear that someone we love is sick, terminally sick. And sometimes the only prayer we have when the ground moves beneath our feet is a gasp. Oh, that can be your prayer. We pray without knowing it when someone dies at too young of an age and there are no words at all. Buechner says that these incidents are all prayers in their own way. And so we pray today, teach us, Lord, how to pray whether we use words or not. According to Jesus, the most important thing about prayer is to do it, and to do it consistently. Paul says to pray without ceasing. So Jesus uses this really a comedic object lesson to teach his point that God is like a slumbering, grouchy friend at midnight who clearly does not want to be disturbed. The sign is on the door handle, do not disturb me, I've already gone to bed. To which the parable kind of indicates, well, you got to just keep pounding. Don't take no for an answer. Eventually, someone will wake up or either the cops are going to come. Like, it's one of the two. To which the neighbor number two says, well, I might as well give up. Get up and give him what he wants so that he won't, he won't keep knocking and I can get back to sleep. I've thought about that pestering that annoyance, that knock. And it reminded me a lot of the battery in the smoke detector. I don't know about yours, but mine seemed to fail at midnight. I don't know. Does yours? And you just hear that cheat, that chirp that just, it, it rings in your ears for the, uh, the rest of the week. It doesn't matter what you put in your ears or how much pillows you put on your head. You might as well just go ahead and get up and change the battery in that moment lest you lose sleep for the next eight hours. I don't know why it works that way, but it does. Persistent chirping from dead batteries rouses one's attention. Persistent chirping from God's children when God's children have dead batteries awakens God's attention. And so one way to read this, this text today, this parable, is about persistence, staying in it, staying at it, 
Staying with it, whether you think you have the right words or the wrong words or no words or only a gasp serves as your words or maybe just the silence or maybe the prayers of other people are the only prayers that you have courage or strength left to pray. Be persistent, consistent. There's another story that actually is about the power of persistence where God is like a judge who refuses to hear the the story of what's called the nagging widow, depending on the Bible translation. This judge who knows that he's not going to get paid, this widow cannot pay him. It's totally pro bono work. No thanks. Keep moving forward. But she keeps pestering the judge until he caves, and he does. And at least now he can move on. Throughout Scripture, we have this theme of the importance of praying persistently, consistently. And so we tend to read today's parable and these other stories that are in resonance with today's parable about the persistence of prayer in our life, and that is is a fair reading of this text. The challenge is when we get to the third part of the triptych, the third part of of the movement, and our life experience begins to break down when Jesus clearly says, ask, seek, knock, and it will be given to you. And yet we say, what happens when I ask and I get no answers? And we find ourselves in a midnight moment, don't we? What happens when I just keep knocking at the door, Lord, and and no one opens it? What happens when life is so heavy and so daunting and I just don't know where to turn or what to do? It's so dark I can only see that far in front of my face. What happens, Lord, when no one, when I'm asking and I'm seeking and I'm knocking and nothing happens? Like when someone is not cured. We've prayed for that person for years and years and years. They've been on our prayer list. When someone dies from a strange illness, even though we've prayed and prayed and prayed, I guess that's why we say, why the snakes when we ask for a fish and why the scorpions when we ask for an egg? Why is this happening? Why? Why sometimes is the best prayer we can pray, by the way. But a deeper faith, a deeper faith, one that, like last week, moves from green gelatinous baby food to meat and potatoes kind of faith. I think that's at the heart of this reading and what Jesus is saying. Be unrelenting, be annoying, be consistent, be persistent until you change. Maybe prayer and the persistence of it is praying until we change. I do know for a fact, I have a ministry coach who tells me this, and I've experienced it over the past year in working with this coach, that there, there cannot be peace around me, that is, in my spheres of influence, unless there's peace within me. Do you know that to be true? There cannot be joy around me. There cannot be love around me. I can't expect for peace and joy and, and love to exist wherever I find myself if it doesn't come from within me first. So I pray. I pray for God to change me if I want to see change in the world. And I need to pray that prayer with persistence. 
It's a challenge, this power of persistence. I think it's more about what God is willing to do than the degree of petitioning we are willing to do through our, our praying. And if we're not careful, as Jason indicated in his prayer, we do end up with a genie in the bottle, uh, put a coin in the gumball machine until you get what you want. Santa Claus kind of God, I just want you to grant my wishes. That's not relationship. That's not the kind of God we serve or the kind of God we even want to serve. Prayer, of which petitioning is a part, of which persistence is part, is designed for relationship, it's designed for honesty, it's designed for vulnerability, not to get what we want. I thought about the story of, of the young child, like many of our children here, who was praying in his room. He said, Lord, if you'll get me a new bike, I promise to be good for one week, right? And his mama overheard him and said, son, that's not how it works. Don't be bargaining with God. It's not going to end up great for you. And so the next week, she overheard him again and said, Lord, you give me that new bike, I'll be good for three whole weeks. She went in there and said, son, that's, I told you, that's not how this works. Don't be bargaining with God. Well, the next thing she knows, she's, she's looking in the pantry. In the very back of the pantry, she sees this little figurine of, of Madonna, you know, the mother of Jesus, and she goes upstairs to ask her son, you know, what is this? This was sitting by your bedstand. Why is it up here now? And he's got a note uh, written, okay, Lord, if you ever want to see your mother again, right? <clears throat> Petitioning persistently for one's wants, I don't think that's a great theology of prayer. But I hold that intention with this truth that we are supposed to ask God. We are supposed to make our requests known to God. So the way I've been working with this text this week is, it's really kind of based on something Richard Foster once wrote. And if your small group, your covenant group, Sunday school class needs a, a wonderful book, the, uh, the Spiritual Disciplines written by Richard Foster is fantastic. And on this section of prayer, he has this wonderful line, and I use it all the time, to pray is to change. To pray is to change, but we're not praying to change God. We're praying to change whom? Us. To change ourselves. We pray to, that God would change the way that we see God. That we pray that God would change the way that we see our neighbor. We, we pray that God would change the way that we see ourselves. And when we pray that prayer over and over again, change us, Lord, so there can be change around us. Uh, make us peaceful, Lord, so there can be peace around us. We begin very slowly but surely fording away forward into this pathway that opens up this portal, this relationship, this vulnerable relationship with God that, that might not otherwise exist. That's the power of prayer. The power of persistence is more about God's want for us and coming for us than it is us trying to get out of God what we think we want or need. And this, this whole thing takes a shift for me based on one word, because on the surface, the text pronounces the persistence of prayer. Because, not only because he's a friend, but because he's persistent. I will get up, and I will go, and I will meet this need. But that word persistence is better interpreted as shameless or shamelessness. Because, because this person comes and knocks, my neighbor is knocking shamelessly, I will rise. 
how is your praying shameless? And how is God's response to that shameless? Or think of it this way. Does prayer lead to less shame in your life and in the lives around you? And what I mean by that is, is this. In, in the first century, and, and many of you know this, you've, you've studied this in your Sunday school classes or in disciple Bible study, but when, when it was bedtime, you know, family gathered in the house, and there were a lot of times two levels to this house, and in the upper level, the upper room, you've heard that phrase before, would be where the father and, and the mother and the children would sleep. In the lower room, the lower section, would be where the livestock, the animals would stay. And I can only imagine trying to get those many, that many mammals asleep every single night, like calm down from the day, from the heat, get them fed, get them watered, get them clean. It's exhausting. So if one finally lies one's head down on one's first century pillow only to hear knock, knock, knock. What? I just went to sleep. But the thing is, in a society that's steeped in hospitality, a culture that's, that thrives on hospitality, this parable is everything and would have been heard as such. It wasn't uh, uncommon for one to travel during the cool nights of a 24-hour period, that is, during the, the middle of the night. It also was, was not uncommon. It was certainly practiced that hospitality would be extended to the traveler at no matter what time that person arrived. A lot of times families didn't have leftovers, and so neighbors routinely would go and borrow food from one another. Not all of that unusual. And the loaves, when he says, I need three loaves, it wasn't like three massive loaves. It was three small loaves, maybe fist-sized loaves. So it wasn't a lot of bread. To which I say, you mean I've got to disrupt heaven and earth to get over there to give three small little loaves? They're going to eat that in like 20 seconds, man. But in the first century, hospitality, the root word of which is hospital, healing begins with hospitality. Hospitality was paramount to the community life, not to extend hospitality, not to hear the cries of one's neighbor, not to know that a neighbor is trying to stand in the gap and intercede for somebody else who's hungry, not to do anything and just to pull back was to bring shame on one's own home, shame on a neighbor, shame on a stranger. The community is at stake the community of faith, because it was set apart to be a place where someone could find healing, even at midnight, especially at midnight, because another friend has arrived and has nothing. Another friend has had enough courage to arrive and say, I have nowhere else to go. May I stay with you? I have no food. Will you feed me? I, have, I need to clean up can I stay with you? To which the friend says, well, sure, I just don't have anything. I've got to go find it. <laughs> but you're so important to me that I'm willing to go wake up my slumbering neighbor who's all settled for the night just to meet your needs. I'm all out. This was unexpected. If I, if I don't feed my friend. My entire family will be embarrassed and shamed. My friend will be embarrassed. He'll never want to see me. He'll feel badly for walking up. He, 
He'll feel just as terrible as I do about waking up my neighbor. I'll lose all of my trust and all of my street creds with my neighborhood. Help a brother out. And most of us, we wouldn't dare answer that door, would we? Not in this day and age, not without a ring system, certainly. It took some moxie, it took some huspah for both of all three of these players to do what they did. Why? They refused to allow one another to be shamed. They refused to allow one another to go hungry or to have needs. And they said, our community, our body, our family, our village, our people are more important than me losing a little sleep. So the parable shifts. And the second neighbor, the one on whose door the first neighbor knocks, the second neighbor becomes like God and rises and is willing to disrupt everything that is in order, is willing to break the darkness of night with the light of a single candle, is willing to answer the door, not even knowing what's on the other side of that door. God will neither sleep nor slumber when somebody is persistent enough to knock and say, hey, there's somebody in need and I don't know what to do. Help me. Teach me to pray, not only with my words, not only with my silence, but with my doing. Help me. Help someone else. Change me. This, change this situation in me that I can change someone else's situation. That's hospitality. That's praying that less shame will come into this world. Because shame is what Jesus came to conquer. And for the whole world, when he was crucified on the cross, he was, well, shamed to offer us a pathway forward out of our own shame. No longer do we have to hide by that which Jesus came to redeem. A few years ago, there was a journalist named Joseph Blackman. He did this op-ed piece and he entitled it, Why Clubs Are Dark. His company paid him to go to all these clubs and check on the lighting. <laughs> I'm sure that's all he did, right, in his research. Uh, but what he discovered is the more we know that we are concealed by darkness, the less self-conscious we are. Darkness hides things, he says. One is more likely to approach a partner in a jam-packed room with loud music than in broad daylight over a quiet cup of coffee Darkness heightens anonymity. And he says this, the mask of darkness allows one to act other than one's self. The mask of darkness allows one to act other than one's self. And I thought about the word hypocrite. It simply means one who wears different masks, right? It's a Greek term, hypocrite. The mask of darkness hides one's shame. And the truth about our human condition is we all want to be found, we just don't always want to be found out. And what this parable is saying is when we pray, when we're bold enough to pray that God would change us so that we can change the world around us, we have to pray that we will be found out. Lord, make me something more than I'm able to be on my own. I can't do it anymore. My cupboards are bare. The bread is gone. The cup doesn't runneth over. It's empty. But I'm willing to stand here and be used. I'm willing to keep knocking as empty as I am, as depleted as I am. I'm willing to keep, keep on knocking because there's a community 
that would keep knocking for me. And there's another brother, there's another sister who's hungry right now. I think God is willing to be inconvenienced if that will prevent another person from being shamed. I think we should be too. Close with this, there's one Lutheran pastor who says that when we pray on another person's behalf, we become connected to that person through God. And we become connected to God through that person because maybe the silken threads of prayer which connect us to God and to one another and even to our enemies are the exact way God is stitching our broken humanity together. That's at the heart of this parable for me is stepping in to the midnight moments of life on behalf of somebody else, maybe despite somebody else. Because we're so empty, we don't know which way to turn. Having enough faith, having enough chutzpah to do just that, standing there in that moment saying, I I can't do it on my own, but I know you can. And the community is so important right now. We need to take these steps together. Lord, teach us how to pray, said the disciples. And he did by highlighting the zeal by which we are willing to bring life's midnight moments to God, not to change God, but to change ourselves and to prevent another human being from remaining in midnight moments of darkness. Teach us to pray, O Lord. We've been watching, we've been slumbering, but we wanna be made new for people are hungry and people are knocking for you. Glory be to God. Amen.